Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Jonathan Birch, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to this Philosophy Live event on coping when life is hard. Can philosophy help? All lives at times are difficult. We think of human suffering, and perhaps we think of war, famine, plague, but even lives that are lived under relatively very fortunate circumstances still include hardship. And there are certain kinds of suffering that it seems none of us can avoid. All of us will die. All of us have to come to terms with our own mortality and with the fact that people we love are also going to die and that we'll have to cope with loss. We have to cope with infirmity, illness, disease. None of us will be perfectly happy, uh, healthy all of our lives. We also have to cope with the world and what hope we might have for the future when so many trends globally seem to be heading in the wrong direction, not least temperature. And I think at times we're all gripped by fears about whether our lives are truly meaningful or not, particularly when we reflect that the world would really be very much the same place, continuing in the same way, even if we weren't in it. Now, religion, I think, gives us templates for trying to cope with all of these challenges. But societies are a lot less religious, I think, than in the past. And it results in a situation where many of us no longer have confidence in those traditional templates for coping with the difficulties of life. And so we often turn to philosophy, among other things, as a possible source of guidance and help. Now, philosophy doesn't always give us what we want. But we'll be thinking in this event about whether philosophy can help, whether philosophy can be a source of guidance when life gets hard. And it's a real pleasure to be joined by three panelists who are on the front line of thinking about these issues and trying to put philosophy to work to help us with difficult moments in, in our life. They are Luke Bovens from uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, author of a recent book called Coping, A Philosophical Guide. Kieran Setia from MIT, author of uh, a new book called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. And Suzanne Burry from the University of Constance, who's written various articles dealing with questions of life and death and meaning. So Suzanne, I'd like to, to start with you, first of all, and with these questions of how we can face up to our own mortality. I mean, a few days ago, I, I woke up with a shoulder injury, giving me this horrible pain in my left arm. And it turns out you know, the symptoms of a, of a shoulder injury quite closely resemble the symptoms of a heart attack. <laughs> and so there was this period of you know, an hour or so I was just gripped by this terror and the absolute existential terror of it. Now, there's a tradition in philosophy of thinking, that's all wrong. That's all a mistake. You shouldn't fear death like that. Death is nothing to fear. Do you think that could possibly be right? 
<laughs> I actually think so, but I'm in the minority, so this is not the uh, mainstream view, even among philosophers who are quite weird. Um, <laughs> yes, but Epicurus famously argued for this. So he said that death, which most people think is something like the greatest of all evils, and Jonathan seems to agree, yeah. is actually nothing to us. So it's neither good nor bad. And the way in which he argued for this is basically just by assuming that death is the end of our existence. So nothing happens after our death. And then he was also a hedonist. So he was some, someone who believed that the good life for a human being is basically one where we don't experience pain or we can minimize the amount of pain that we experience and where we maximize the pleasure that we experience. And then he put together these two assumptions. So his philosophical hedonism, as it's called, basically believe that only pleasure is good, pain is the only thing that's really bad for you, and the assumption that death is the end of our existence, to reach uh, the seemingly quite uh, convincing conclusion based on these uh, two assumptions, that death is really nothing to you. The idea is you exist, you exist, you exist, and then once death comes around, you cease to exist, you're no longer there, and death there. And its effects um, can no longer affect you in any way whatsoever. And so we have the conclusion that death is actually nothing. It's a bold argument that death is nothing to us because as soon as it happens, we just exit the world. And so we're not there suffering. We're just gone. Yep. And we shouldn't worry about this. Do you think that's a good argument? I think it's better than um, most people think it is, actually. So this problem is called the no subject problem. And I think it's actually quite deep once you start to think about it. But should I give you the usual philosophical way to respond to it, to see the way in which well, it is Well, I mean, flawed? just give me the way you think we should respond to it. I think the best way to respond to it is to realize that human beings are not all about pleasure and pain. So um, you can say, well, pleasure and pain are important to human beings, and we do try to seek pleasure and we try to avoid pain, but that's really not what human beings are all about. And if you reflect on what human beings are also, then we're also agents and basically rational agents. We have ideas about what a good life would be like. So for example, it might involve being a good friend, being a good partner, traveling the world, learning things, for example, learning a language or contributing to making the world a better place, maybe by, uh, I don't know, becoming a biologist, finding a cure for cancer, that kind of thing. We're also agents in that way. And once you think about humans in that way, you see that we live our lives oriented towards the future. So we're always building things. We're involved in plans and projects, and we're not involved in them yeah. only to maximize the pleasure that we experience or to minimize the pain. They're so it's because we're meaningful. involved in these long-term projects that will fall apart with our, with our death. Yeah, they propel us into the future mm. is the way in which Bernard Williams, a famous philosopher, puts it. And they make death a threat because you have these things that are ongoing and they make you want to stay alive. And death becomes this threat that has the scary power to make our mm. efforts become futile or uh, ruin our investments, so to speak. And this is the way in which I think um, we can realize that maybe Epicurus wasn't right. So if we're human beings who live into the future, mm. um, death actually becomes something quite scary and threatening. Which is intuitively how I see it already. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if that's right and Epicurus is wrong, you know, because we're not just these pleasure-seeking creatures, we just care about having good transient experiences, and when they come to an end, they come to their end, but that's no bad thing. 
because we're more than that, because we have these projects that propel us into the future, our mortality is something we, we meet with great fear and that we have to somehow cope with, leading to the question of, of how, we, how we face up to it. I mean, so let's bring in, bring in Kieran on this. I mean, you've written this wonderfully humane book called Life is Hard about how we can think through some of these challenges. One of the biggest is just facing up to the prospect of our own death. Yeah, well, so I, I, the way I approach it is vicarious in a way. I start with the case of grieving someone else. And I think that case is useful in thinking about one's own death, in part because the Epicurean idea that it's not a bad thing for someone to die and we should, the aspiration to achieve equanimity about your own death can seem very noble. But if you switch it into the, the third person and think, my ambition is to achieve equanimity about your death, you might feel like this is it's less of a noble endeavor you've taken up there, Kieran, and I, I have some qualms about it. And so I, I think one way to, to sort of channel my resistance to, to Epicurus and to the Stoic tradition that follows him in, in arguing that we should just accept mortality as inevitable and therefore not care about it, is that I don't think it's a mistake mm -hmm. to grieve the loss of people we love. I think grief can be excessive. It can be too self-centered. There are all kinds of ways in which it can go wrong, but it's not fundamentally a, a mistake. But the Epicurean is also indifferent to the deaths of others because they've, they've lost nothing either. And that seems so unimaginable, particularly when someone we love uh, dies. I mean, I'm not sure what Epicurus himself actually says about this. The Stoics who, who have a similar view about their own deaths, namely the idea is you should, when, when something is inevitable, you have no control over it, you should detach from it and not care about it at all. Their view really, one of the paradigm examples Epictetus gives in his handbook is if you, when, when someone you love dies, just remind yourself that they're a human being and you won't grieve anymore because what do you think? They were going to live forever? Just the same way as when your jug breaks, if you just remind yourself that, you know, you brought it from Ikea yeah. two weeks ago, what was going to happen? It was going to last forever. And that I think is that works is, with jugs, right? It may it may work with jugs. I think there's some there's uh, that might tell us something about the difference between the value of jugs and people <laughs> that that we don't rightly react that way. And I mean that's part. There is a this general stoic idea that we shouldn't recoil from things that are inevitable. That we should just accept them. I think is one we should resist. I think we should we should fight even the inevitable hardships of life. So one case study in this was. Epictetus himself was enslaved, and his, his primary case for accepting things you can't change was his acceptance of his own enslavement, that he couldn't do anything about it, just don't worry about it. And there was, when Epictetus was translated into English, it was in the 1860s, Henry James, the novelist, reviewed this translation and imagined what this stoic doctrine of acceptance would sound like in the mouth of uh, an African slave in the American South. And you can imagine what he said, and that sort of fits my reaction to the Stoic advice. Whether exactly Epicurus says that, I'm less sure what Epicurus says about grief in particular. So it seems like when we're grieving the loss of someone we love, just this thought that everyone dies, get over it, is, is of no comfort at all. I mean, how can we put a limit on our grief, though? I mean, I think that's a fascinating issue raised by the book, that it seems possible to grieve too much. It seems like there does come a point at which... We must somehow move on, but we don't want to move on immediately, too quickly. There's some balance to be struck. What sort of considerations can help us get the balance right? I think there is a really deep puzzle here. So when you 
some aspects of grief, grief are self-focused. So how am I going to cope? Uh, I'm, I'm very upset. How will I get on with my life? But there's also a completely outward-facing form of grief, grief that really is about the loss to the person who died and just the sheer fact that they don't exist anymore. And the puzzle is that really never changes. So if the thought is grief, we should grieve. If we were just indifferent to people's deaths, we'd be making a mistake. We wouldn't be taking in reality. Okay. So someone you love dies and the, the apt response is to feel very upset about this. And then five years later, you look back and think, well, they're still dead. And the fact that five years has passed doesn't make their loss, doesn't diminish what they've lost. Like that they're as non-existent as they were when my when the apt response to their non-existence seemed to be to grieve terribly. So there's a kind of philosophical puzzle about how it can be, how it can make sense to stop grieving if the reason for grief is just this person who I love is gone. So anyway, that's more. You, I think you wanted an answer to the puzzle, whereas I've just given you a puzzle. But anyway, maybe that's yeah. a start. I mean, I think so. I think from time to time about uh, Peter Lipton, who was my first academic mentor, who died 15 years ago quite suddenly. And of course, one grieves much less over time as time goes on. So 15 years from the event, it's just a almost like a historical fact. But then actually, if you, if you think of the, the loss to Peter, it's probably at its greatest now, because this is sort of precisely the point at which he would have been this celebrated incredibly distinguished member of the profession. So there's this mismatch between what the person who's died has lost and the way those who continue feel about it. It's quite troubling. I do think it's it's troubling. On the other hand, I don't think the right conclusion to draw from this is, guys, we should all just be grieving <laughs> forever. I think what's happening here is that there's a kind of rationalist fantasy that philosophers are prone to that turns out to have a a wider resonance, which is the idea that not only are emotions responsive to reasons, but there is a rational course for any emotion to take that is dictated by reason. And if you just sat down and reasoned it through, you could figure out, as it were, the, the right amount or way to grieve for someone. And I don't think that's true. I think this is why the conventions of mourning are so important and why we rely on them so much and why they're culturally variable because their reason is not telling you, you know, you should sit shiver for seven days as opposed to, you know, you should have a kind of church service of the following kind. What's happening is reason is telling you begin the grieving process, like start to grieve. And then it sort of cuts out and you're left Mm. flailing to try and figure out how long do I do this? How do I manage this? And pure reason is not going to answer those questions. And then I think in a way that's human and perfectly appropriate, we just rely on on the conventions around us. And one way in which that can be very difficult is when those conventions are lost or frayed. So, you know, the the most salient example of this was people, including my father-in-law died during the the pandemic, and my wife couldn't Mm -hmm. go and be with the the family or couldn't travel. And there's this question, well, how do we grieve in this circumstance. I think a lot of people went through versions of that during the pandemic where they they couldn't map out how to how to the processes of grieving were suspended along with everything else. Right. And that you you had to sort of make it up as you went along. Mm. So let's bring Luke in on this. Luke, in your book Coping, you have a chapter on death. And one of the issues you grapple with there is would it be preferable to not die? Would it be preferable to have 
eternal life. What do you think about this? If we could somehow avoid dying like the elves in, in Lord of the Rings, yeah. is this something we should choose? Yeah. Well, it, well, it's interesting because, you know, you sort of can think about it in the context of, do we want eternal life? And then, of course, we bring in religion and salvation and all of that, eternal bliss and all that. Or do we want our lives to be such that we would be immortal with this very life, right? Mm. And, and I got interested in the topic, actually, when I was reading an interview with Einstein. And, you know, Einstein on religion is always kind of fascinating because a lot of people try to claim him on their side. Um, whereas Einstein says, I believe in the God of Spinoza, you know, or feeling that. Um, but Einstein is asked about eternal life, and he says, one life is enough for me. I thought that was interesting because, and I'm pushing it now in the, in, in the direction of, of, of eternal life and religion, right? Because what is he saying here? Well, it's kind of like, you want another beer? No, one beer is enough for me. Right? I have no further desires for, for another beer. And, and so, so then I started thinking about this in the context of, of hope. Um, because, you know, Christians say they hope for salvation, right? And, and it's interesting. What is hope? What is hope? Well, it has this sort of belief element to it. You've got to think it's possible. Because if you think it's impossible, you can regret that it didn't happen. You can wish for it. But to hope, you got to think at least that it's possible. And then you got to desire it. And then I think there is also sort of this element in hope that you got to have it kind of be tossed around in your, in your head a little bit. You know, like you have to do some mental imaging. That is, you know, it has to play, into you, play a role in your imagination before we say that you're hoping. Now, let me bring that to the salvation slash eternal life issue, right? Because typically when people say, I don't hope, I don't share that Christian hope for eternal life, we say, oh, okay, I see what you mean. You think it's impossible. It's kind of like the wood nymphs and the leprechauns, right? You think it's impossible, so that's why you can't hope for it. But Einstein is interesting because he says, I don't desire it. Yeah. And it's the second pillar of hope that he takes away. But then you say, why is that the case? Um, and that's an interesting question, I think. Um, so here's sort of a, a quick response to it. I mean, you might think, and of course, he doesn't say anything more than that, so we don't know, right? But you might think something like, look, you know, better never to have existed. Yeah, but who's so lucky? Not one in a thousand. <laughs> right? But if that's your position on human life, why would you want another one? Yeah. So that's maybe one way to go. Um, another way to go would be to say, look, you know, there's a kind of beauty to the ephemeral. It's like the spring flowers, you know. There's these atoms, they come together, they do this amazing thing for a while, they disintegrate, they go do another thing. Beautiful, because it is ephemeral, like, like the spring flowers. That's sort of another way it could be filled in. And then kind of a final way of filling it in, this goes back again to Bernard Williams. Bernard Williams had this view that immortality slash eternal life would be massively boring. Yeah. It's like, well, why is that? Well, he says, look, either you run out of desires to satisfy, 
Or if your desires are not satisfied, you're going to get seriously frustrated. Yeah. So the whole thing is going to, just going to get boring as can be, right? And I was thinking, well, maybe that's a way not to desire immortality slash eternal life. But another way to read that would be to say, look, here's an Emily Dickinson thing on this. She talks about eternal life and she says it's so huge, so impossible to conceive, right? So I think this sort of idea of what could eternal bliss be like? You could say, look, I can't hope for it because I can't form an image of it. Yeah, I can't form an image of it. I don't know what it would be like. If I start filling it in, I get into this kind of Williams thing about, oh, it'd be boring, you know? But no, it's eternal bliss. Well, if, you can, if I can't fill it in, if I can't fill in the image, then I can't properly hope for it either. Yeah. So you think he's actually, on uh, yeah, yes. yeah, just I think, so I really okay. like the Einstein quote. I mm -hmm. resonate with it. Um, and I think there's a further way of making sense of it that goes back to the Epicureans who say that death is nothing to us. And what they say actually is quite alien to our thinking, but I think it's attractive and it's basically the idea that more of a good thing doesn't make it better. So the beer idea, they say once you've reached something like what they call the good life, once you're actually living a good life, even though it's good, more of it isn't actually better. And that's quite important to their thinking that death is actually yeah, nothing. And maybe Einstein had something like this in mind. It doesn't have to be that life is terrible, even though that's our topic today. Yeah. Um, it can also be <laughs> good, but having more of it wouldn't make it better. I agree with Einstein as well. I mean, I think it's not that immortality would be tedious, but that I would l cease to be me. I would lose my integrity yeah. eventually all, all of the projects that define my identity and who I am would just come to a natural end and then I'd just carry on and if I carried on I'd be someone else yeah. there's just a, a follow up on that. so I, I think I'm, I'm sadly less attached to my integrity and I, 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 <laughs> I, if, the, if the price of immortality was to you know, change quite a lot and you know, like okay but, no, I, but there, is, there is something in the same vein that, that I think is, is sort of puzzling about our desire for immortality which is goes along with the thought about one life is enough, that there's a kind of greed to it. So you might say, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of things that you might think are really cool. Like, I wish I could fly, and I wish uh, I could leap tall buildings in a single bound, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't feel a deep insult to my being in the fact that I can't do those things. I don't, I'm not very upset about the fact that I can't do them. And why not? If you ask me, I'd say, well, they're just humanly impossible. I'm a human being, you know, whatever. But what I find puzzling about my own reaction to death is that, that you could say the same thing. Like, well, you want to live forever, Kieran? Well, it's like having a superpower. Like, th that's the superpower that you'd pick? Fair enough. But when someone tells you you don't have that superpower, you don't say, oh, well, I'm a human being. What's going to happen? You say, ah, <laughs> I can't sleep at night. I'm having a you know, panic attack. So I, I don't know quite what to do with that reaction. But I do think there's something, something puzzling about why this special power it can become an object of intense obsession for some of us and why and the thought there's something greedy about it there's something excessive about that desire you're wanting something unreasonably grand when you when you wish you could live forever that I, it doesn't really help me that much but insofar as any of the philosophical ideas help me reconcile myself to mortality that it, it's something you're like making that. an imposition on future generations well, th well there's that too so there's a moral argument absolutely there's the thought um, if, if, if we all live forever, where are you, you know, where are your kids going to live? You know, like, um, 
So uh, yeah, that's a, that, that. There's a uh, moral problem with with immortality too. It's resource intensive. One could think of there being an evolutionary argument for it. I take it right. I mean, you know, if you want, if you want a particular species to to propagate, and you you got to have this feature of wanting to stay alive, because if you don't have that, well, you're gonna be obliterated in selection. Yeah. So it's only it for like long enough to reproduce. Argument. Not not forever. You don't. I mean, you, it's bad evolutionarily to try to live forever. You want future that's generations. True that's to, true too. Yes. Uh, yes. That's why we age. Yeah. 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 And also, it gives yeah. you a kind of explanation. Even if it worked, it would just give you an explanation. Whereas, I think, what, as with grief, we want to make rational sense of our responses from the inside, not just to think, mm -hmm. "Well, it's not no surprise that we're animals that work this way," but to think, "Why am I grieving?" Well, it's because I've lost someone, and they really mattered which is a different kind of making sense than an evolutionary making sense would be. So I'd like to move on to a different theme that's explored in these two recent books, which is the theme of the meaning of life or finding meaning in one's life. Certainly one of the chapters of, of your book here and that I found most interesting is quite a sustained discussion, of the possibility that our lives might be absurd or meaningless in a way that takes that threat unusually seriously of the recent philosophy. So I'd just like you to give us some sense of what you think the threat is there and why we should take it seriously. Well, there's a, a kind of distinction that I really lean very hard on that I think I want to introduce here, which is the, the distinction between an individual having a meaningful life, life maybe of worthwhile activities that go more or less well and that they're more or less satisfied with, and the idea of the meaning of life. So, you know, individual meaningful lives, maybe, you know, some of you have them, some of you don't. Maybe it, it, it's a personal issue, whether you're having a meaningful life. But we also a psychological have, thing. Or, I mean, I think it's not just psychological. It's like how, you, how your life is actually going. I mean, as Suzanne said, I think it's we shouldn't just think about, say, pleasure and pain, but what you're actually doing in the world. But hmm. the thought is it, an individual life can be meaningful for the person who's living it. But there's also this further question that we feel tempted to ask, I think, um, which is, does human life as a whole have meaning? Like, what does it all mean? Where if there's an answer, there's one answer for all of us, or there's no answer at all. It's not like, you know, different answers for each each person. It's the meaning of human life. Yeah. And just like, my life. Exactly. And that's where I think a lot of philosophers are skeptical that mm. the question, does life have meaning or could life have meaning, really makes sense. I think we can make sense of it. And one way to do that is to think about the kind of meaning you might attribute to a work of art, say a novel or a painting, where you ask this question, what does it all mean really? And what you're looking for is some kind of description of it that helps make sense of how it all fits together, that then guides your emotional and attitudinal response to it. It's like asking, you know, give me a summary of what it's primarily about that tells me how to feel about it. And I think the question, now, is there a story about human life and its place in the universe that's a true story that tells us how to feel about it is a good question. And that I think mm. you know, religions sometimes provide that kind of story. Yeah. It's harder in a secular context. And so one way to think about the threat of absurdity is that we ask this question and the answer is not, it's all bleak and terrible. It's that there just isn't an answer. We're like, no, there isn't any story like that. Or how you feel about things as a whole, it's just arbitrary. 
And in general, I'm resistant to the idea that our emotional reactions or skeptical of the idea that our emotional reactions are, gen- are just arbitrary, as in the case of grief, where I think, no, you'd be making a mistake if you didn't grieve at all. In the same way, I think, no, th- there's at least the prospect of telling a story about yeah. human life that really would tell us how to feel about it. When you talk about telling us how to feel, is there this sense of what we want is a story about humanity that will adjudicate between I suppose, optimistic and pessimistic visions of what is going on, where you can imagine this rather bleak story that just says, well, there, there's, no, there's no teleology or purpose of any kind in the universe. There's just these physical processes that happen to have, through evolution, produced this freakishly intelligent creature, and this creature is now thrashing around until it destroys itself, and uh, then the universe will just carry on, and there'll be heat death and everything will stop, you know, versus some sort of more optimistic story that might have elements of the sort of stories religions tell. Is that what you're getting at? Basically, but there's a a kind of perverse way in which I want to say, if the story of human existence was, uh, we just screw it all up and destroy ourselves, that wouldn't be a case in which human life has no meaning. It would be a case in which there was a story about human life that did tell us how to feel. The story was, we absolutely couldn't get it together. We destroyed ourselves and we should feel pretty bad about the way human history went. So there is a meaning of life. It's, it's not the one you were hoping for, but. Uh, so you use the term in a very broad sense that allows yeah. for very pessimistic answers. Right. I think that I, I want to allow the idea that the meaning of life could be very bleak, but I think that thought experiment of sort of imagining how should you respond if, hum- if humanity just destroys itself answer if you don't feel anything about that, you're really missing something. You should feel pretty bad about that. Gives us a picture of what a more positive story might be. So, and I don't think it depends on some inherent teleology. Suppose, as a matter of fact, we, so for me, climate change is the sort of looming question here. Suppose we, as a matter of fact, instead of allowing climate change to create massive civil disturbance and war and violence and resource conflict, we somehow muddle through and make progress towards a more just world in all the kinds of ways that depend on addressing climate change. Mm. I think everyone should feel if that happened, if that happened, should feel, huh, feel okay about it. Like there's terrible things about humanity. It's not, they're not redeemed. There's grave injustice in the past. It's not like it's all better, but if that's the way the future goes, I think we should be okay with it. So what I want to say is that there could be a story about human life that tells us how to feel and that the where the feeling is one that's in a way positive or accepting, but whether that's the case, whether human history or really the human future takes that shape is just a contingent matter. It may, it may not. And whether it does depends yeah. collectively on, uh, on us. So we can, we can, in a way that's very different from the existentialist thought that you make up your own life's meaning. We collectively make mm-hmm. up the meaning of human life in the in the philosopher's so sense, the meaning of human life, one way or another, has to be about our part in a story about the entire species. And there's obviously very bleak stories that may be true. You think there's also these stories of redemption, I suppose, that may be true, where humanity has some pretty rough centuries and then gets it together in a very redeeming way. And so, potentially, a more pos- positive take on the meaning of human life is to be part of that story of gradually getting it together. Right. And I think it, it's not, it is the best we can do, I think, as a secular version of what religions mm-hmm. give us. So often when people talk about, say, 
um, religious visions of immortality, they interpret it as though the desire for immortality or the, the sort of driving force was fear of death. But in most religious traditions, there's a wonderful book by the theologian John Bowker about this. In, the role of immortality is to make up for the injustice of mortal life. Like it, mm -hmm. Part of the reason we need there to be this other realm is that around us, the wicked are flourishing and the virtuous are suffering. And the, we, we've got to hope that there's something after this mortal life so that the, the scores can be settled. I mean, and, and, it, and the future can play that role. And the thought is right. So there what you have is a kind of a, a metaphysical, otherworldly scope mm. for a kind of justice that makes us think, oh, human suffering, it's terrible, but I'm okay with it. And yeah, the closest secular analog I think we could have is a human future that made us think, okay, we did as well as we could under difficult conditions of making our way towards some modicum of justice. This is a way of thinking about the meaning of life question that is very different, I think, to anything I've heard before. And Suzanne, what are your reactions to this way of, of thinking about it? Yeah, my immediate reaction um, about this exchange is that you're too optimistic about religion. So I only know about... Kieran is. What did yeah. I say? No, 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 he's started... the moderator. He can't be. He can't be criticized. Yeah. But you start the panel by saying religion had the answer. Gives us answers. answers, not necessarily correct answers. <laughs> yeah. But that's my point. So I can only talk about Christianity, Christianity reasonably competently. But it's something I've always found puzzling, and I recommend to all of you to look at the Book of Job. Job mm. is that how you put it in? Well, book of Job. The Book, book of, of Job. Job. Yeah. Um, you should check it out even louder as it maybe turned itself uh, off. Let's just lean into the microphone. Oh, the mic's not working. Just bring your chair forward a little. Oh, yeah. The, mic the microphones are working, but you're at some distance from them. Better? That's, too, that's, <laughs> that's, a, little too, <laughs> little, that's a little too close, so a little, a little back. Okay. Book of Job. That's how you put it. Yeah, yeah. And basically, the point of it is that Christianity didn't provide a meaning that we can grasp. The point of the book of Job is to say, when you ask, like, what does it all mean? How can there be so much suffering? Can you explain it to me, God? How is it um, meaningful? His answer, God's answer in this book is, you just have to trust that it somehow makes sense in a way that you cannot grasp. And I personally find that very unsatisfactory. I mean, if I were able to trust, maybe. But what I like about Kieran's, or let's just say a philosophical answer to the idea that there could be meaning, is that it's a meaning that we can grasp. And I actually find it borderline incoherent to say that there is a meaning, but it's beyond humanity to grasp it. Like, is that even a meaning? So I think... It's not that religion gave us answers that now we no longer have. Yeah. In a way, if the answers were intelligent, they weren't really answers. Um, so I would mm. just say um, we haven't lost maybe that much if yeah. we give up on this idea of what human meaning could be all about. Mm. Yeah. I, I think I just want to agree with what you said, or at least to echo the thought that sometimes what, I, what you get in a religious tradition is not the story that is supposed to reconcile you, but a story about there being such a story. So yes, exactly. I was thinking of Pope's essay on man, which is what ends with whatever is, is right. But the, 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 the theodicy that's supposed to tell, theodicy is supposed to justify the ways of God to man involves us not understanding. The entire theme is what we don't understand exactly. how all the bad stuff is okay, but there is, don't worry, you should, there is assurance that it is. And I agree yeah. that there's something potentially very unsatisfying mm. and, and mystifying about yeah. 
reconciling oneself in the secondhand way. It's like, why do you feel okay about things? Well, I don't really know why, but I know that there is a reason why I should. But these secular yeah. stories you're describing, Kieran, have a similar structure, don't they? Where there's no detail about how we're going to solve climate change and, and sort of redeem ourselves. It's rather the hope that that gap will somehow be filled in with something. So that's very similar to the religious story. I suppose that's true, although I think in that case, it's much easier to turn to people who are working on the problem and say, okay, well, what would it take to collectively make progress on this? I do think there's, there's a whole bunch of challenges there that are relevant to the way in which life is hard, which is the difficulty of you know doom surfing and seeing all the terrible things that are happening and feeling powerless to do anything about it. And when someone says, hey, life could have meaning if the arc of human history is bent towards justice, and you go away and think, well, that's true. What am I going to do about that tomorrow? The answer, it can seem a completely paralyzing question. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a simple answer to that beyond looking for ways in which mm -hmm. in your the, the place you are, like if you're at LSE, your institution, your place of work in the town where you live, you can, in those smaller collectives, start to make a difference, even if you can't immediately change you know, national policy on climate and accept the fact that you're going to feel like you're not doing enough. So, you know, one way this is vivid to me is I, I am myself not much of an activist. I've worked with Fossil Free MIT uh, with limited success to get, try and get MIT to divest. Hmm. But I have friends who are activists who are doing so much. And when I talk to them about my sense that I'm not doing enough, they also share it. Their, their response is that they're doing so much more than I am. And they're still like, yeah, I just think maybe I could be doing more. What, you know, what else should I be doing? So I, in a way, I think, a certain amount of acceptance of the fact that we're going to feel that we're not doing enough is in order and trying to avoid using that as an excuse to not do anything. Mm, it's not a reason for despair. The fact that our own individual contributions to this human-sized story will not be incredibly small. small. Yes. And let's bring Luke in on this. Luke, you in your book discuss this more individual-centered question mm -hmm. about how an individual can live a life that is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. How do you think that relates to what Kieran's been talking about, about yeah, this, what make hum, makes humanity in general meaningful? Yeah, this one, they're very different questions, really. Um, thinking about, you know, what, what um, gives my individual life meaning, right? Um, and as with so much of my thinking about this, it sort of starts with, an anecdote, just something somebody tells me, and I start, you know, mulling about it. And so a friend of mine, who's a retired medical doctor, um, spends his, his days in, in, in archives, you know, working genealogy, family trees and all that. And he says to me at one point, you know, thing that, that really, that I'm really proud of, and that gives kind of meaning to my life is that I know I will have constructed this family tree of a particular family. You know, that's the thing that will, will continue. You know, that's, that's how I see, see the meaning of my life. And, you know, I have, a, the legacy. I, have a, I have a thing for the medical profession that is, you know, if I had to do it over again, I would definitely think about, you know, doing some, something different than philosophy. And I just was looking at him and I said, what about your patients, right? And he says, my patients are all dead. <laughs> and if they're not, they're going to die soon. 
you know? And I was just <laughs> kind of shocked by that. And I think, and this brings me kind of to this view that there is a particular way of filling in the meaning of life. I call it the magnum opus view. Yeah. That is, you know, I have this big project and it's grand and it's enduring. It will project into the future. And that's what makes my life worthwhile. Be the family tree, be it a magnum opus, a big book that I'm writing or whatever. Right. And, and I just, now, you know, there is something to be said for that because people do worry about this thing. Like, you know, what if it was all going to end tomorrow? Yeah. We're the last generation or something. Oh, that would be terrible because we wouldn't have see any meaning anymore in what we're doing. Why not? Well, because there's nothing that we can do that would be enduring. I said, okay, you know, you want to do grand and enduring projects and that gives meaning to your life. So there's something to be said for it. But, but I also think there's something sort of deeply wrong about that. Um, and that gets me a bit in line with, um, you know, the midlife crisis, the previous book, right? That is, you know, when, Ke when Keats was um, in his dying days, he thought he had made nothing of himself as a poet. Yeah. And he said he just didn't have enough time. But he said, I've always lived according to the principle of beauty. And that is what makes my life worthwhile. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting because you could think of your life not as, oh, here's this big project that I finished. It's like, no, there's a particular mode in which I lived. For Keats, it was like, I'm an, as an aesthete. And that makes, gives value to my life, right? For many people, it's like, I lived a life of honesty, a life of integrity, authenticity, and this and that. So I think there is sort of an alternative to the, you know, the project magnum opus style thinking about one's life. That is, what is the mode in which I live? And that gives yeah, me. It's been clear now. Yeah, right. This is just a footnote to what you said, which is that the worry about the doctor is if he doesn't finish the thing, then it's very risky to mortgage everything on this one project. Like mm -hmm. the what if I die tomorrow worry is for him much more threatening than it would be for, to, right. in a way, for Keats, even though Keats died young, which is if he died tomorrow, well, there'd have been less living with beauty. But it won't be that the one thing, the completion of which was supposed to make his life meaningful, just didn't get completed. And mm. well, I guess that was that. So I also wanted to say, I, I was worried when you said you wanted to be a doctor, that you were going to be running against the theme that philosophy can help you cope. But then you were <laughs> equally negative about medicine. So <laughs> um, Yeah, I, I guess there is sort of, you know, there is that saying, it's like, it's all about the journey, not about the destination, right? Which yeah. comes in here. I think one of the problems in this area of philosophy is that sometimes these maxims are actually good. Yeah. And then, then you have to repeat them as a philosopher and say, but no, I know it sounds like a greeting card thing, but it's really actually quite deep. And then you can try to explain why it's exactly, deep, yeah, exactly. but, but there's always a slight feeling of, um, you know, that it's always more fun when the philosopher comes along and tells you, you know, this revolutionary alternative thing is true, but often the revolutionary alternative thing is, is well, not true. There have been some people thinking before us, you know, in various it's true, it's styles, true. And, yes. you know, or yeah. you respect that, you know. Yeah. Okay, and it'll soon be time for, for your questions from the audience, including the online audience. So please be thinking now about what questions you'd like to ask. And if you're online, please type them into the Q&A box. If you're here in the room, there is no Q&A box. You'll have to speak uh, using human language. Um, <laughs> but I, I'd just like to bring us on to a, another topic that is in both books. Uh, it's, it's right at the end of your book here and in the beginning of Luke's, this topic of hope. 
and the uses and limits of hope. I think it seems very easy to overhope, so to speak, and to succumb to wishful thinking, but also, as we've seen, very hard to live without any hopes at all. For many of us, the hope that the future might be better for future generations is incredibly important. And Luke, you've thought about hope over you know, more than 30 years now. What do you think people can take from that about how we can cultivate appropriate hopes and avoid getting drawn into wishful thinking? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, hope is just, there's this twin poems by Emily Dickinson. And in one, she says, hope is the thing with feathers and it's the beautiful thing. It's, you know, what, what we should have in life. And in the other one, she says, it's a subtle glutton, you know, eats away at our lives, you know. And, and that's kind of the tension is right there. And, and I started thinking about this when the Shawshank Redemption movie came out a long time ago, mid nineties or so. There's this wonderful conversation where they're talking about, first it's music, but then it's like, you know, music really matters in between these walls here, you know, in prison, right? And, and then music is really just a metaphor for hope. And, and one character says, you know, it's the only thing you have. It's, it's that thing deep inside of you that they can't take away from you. And the other character goes like, no, it's a thing you can't let go of hope because it will poison your mind. Yeah. Hope is a dangerous thing. It's just the same thing. And, and I think there is something about, you know, in order to hope well, I think what you need is a kind of inner strength. And I think that's the input. And, but if you hope, I think it also gives you a kind of inner strength. So it can sort of get spun into a, into a virtuous cycle. Yeah. Now, let me fill that in. How can it give you inner strength? Well, I think one of the important things you do in hope is when you hope for somebody else, yeah, you say you are a person who are worth hoping for in love. We hope for the well-being of the other person. You're a person who is worth hoping for. When you hope for something for yourself, you give yourself self-worth. You say thereby, I'm somebody who's worth hoping for. And that gives you inner strength. Yeah. It gives you also, you play around with the idea, what would it be like? You explore possibilities. Martin Luther King says, in hope, what you do is you turn liabilities into assets, make lemonade out of limes, you know, same stuff. Mm. Um, or lemons. Uh, lemons, yeah. right. Yours was more miraculous. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Limonade, limonade. <laughs> right. So that, that is, that's the inner strength that you get. But on the other hand, hope can be a dangerous thing. It makes you complacent. It's like as long as you hope for a good harvest, if the peasants hope for a good harvest, they're not going to revolt. Yeah. It makes you complacent, makes you somewhat delusional. You know, you think it's all going to be okay, makes you obsessive. This idea that could come about is just kind of ricocheting back and forth in Ukrainian, you know. So, you know, that's what's, what's dangerous about it. And, and the interesting thing is that the character in Shawshank Redemption, who says hope is a dangerous thing, in the book, he's a, an, an Irish immigrant. In the movie, he's an African-American. Yeah, he comes from privileged, he comes from underprivileged backgrounds, whereas the other character, the Andy character, comes from a privileged background. So the idea is, you know, if, if the world is working with you, it's okay to hope because things will, will work out somehow. 
But if the world's against you, then it can be a dangerous thing to hope. Um, you know, if time after time you're being struck down in your aspirations, yeah, then 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 it becomes a dangerous thing to hope. And that's why I thought, think that slogan of Obama, the audacity of hope, yeah, that is underprivileged groups have no business hoping, but they should be audacious, they should be courageous. Do the hoping and the hope will pull you up into a virtuous cycle. Mm -hmm. So I think that sort of, you know, there's pros and cons. And if your situation is such that the cons will be prevalent, that's tricky. That's tricky. You've got to be careful with what you hope for. But at the same time, there's something about being audacious and having the courage to do it anyway, because it will pull you up. Let's bring Kieran in on this. Kieran, in your book, you write about, in a similar way, I think, about the ambivalence of hope being not an unequivocally good thing. Yes, no, I definitely share Luke's ambivalence about about this, and you know, I, I think of the, the passivity of hope. The, I think of Greta Thunberg saying at the World Economic Forum in Davos, "I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic." And uh, I, I sort of really uh, that really resonated with me that there was a that was a case where people were very privileged, but nevertheless there was a risk that hope was going to lead to a kind of complacency. Mm. And I think. For me, the biggest insight here that, I, again, I really share with Luke is that hope, the, the question can't be, should we hope or is hope good or bad? And it's tempting to ask that question, but again, climate change is on my mind. You think, you know, should I despair or should I be hopeful? I think this is not a helpful question. The question isn't, is hope good? Sometimes good, sometimes bad. The question is, what should we hope for? And the advantage of that question and that framing is that it focuses on hoping well, and also that there's almost always an answer, even if the answer is to figure out an answer. So, you know, in the case of climate change, it's not all or nothing. It's a problem that literally comes by degrees. So you might be thinking, well, we're not going to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. So you think, okay, let's hope for 1.6. No, it turns out it's not good. Okay, let's hope for 1.7. There's always, uh, it's a much more tractable question. What should we hope for? It's one that's much more enabling of action. It's tied to action. It's a kind of practical question. And even in the cases where you think, I don't even know what to do about this. I don't know what to hope for. There's room for what the philosopher Jonathan Lear calls radical hope, which is mm -hmm. hoping to come up with the resources to figure out something that would actually make sense to now do or hope for in this circumstance. So for me, that is a way of just re-asking the question of re reframing the topic that philosophy can help us get to that is genuinely uh, enabling and at least mm -hmm. stops me from asking a question that's just sort of debilitating. Do you think our hopes need to be a little bit more down to earth than I hope for 1.6 degrees or less at warming? <laughs> so when, oh. I, when I think about these issues, I suppose I just, what I hope is that, you know, sea levels don't rise so that countries like the Maldives end up underwater. I mean, it's this very material, tangible thing. Yeah. And I don't care so much about the, the decimal places yeah. <laughs> through which this is achieved. The hope is very much about people and people's lives. No, no, I totally agree with that. It's, it's a useful proxy for, for kind of the scale of the harms is looking at like the, the numerical um, degree of warming. But right, ultimately, the reason why that matters is the effects on people. And there are ways in which it can be not just a, a harmless proxy, but risky to focus on numbers. So one of the ways in which I think, for instance, the idea of the two-degree target has been risky. Uh, was it, The idea of it was, let's have something concrete to focus on. But the one risk is you turn out to be wrong about where the target should be. And then you're like, actually, 1.5, sorry. And that creates a lot of uncertainty. But the other is, 
it, it creates this all or nothing thinking, which is very, which is exactly the thing I think we should be resisting. It makes you think if we, if we do this, we win. And if not, we lose. So if we think we're not going to win, ah, just forget it. Then. Let's give up. And that's a, that's a terrible kind of way to, to think about this kind of issue. It's it, even if things are going incredibly badly, we should continue to strive for, to reduce the scale of human suffering or minimize how much more suffering there is. And yeah, so I, I, that's, part of what I'm getting at with the degree thing is a resistance to that, but you're right that really the question is what actually happens to people. Mm. And Luke, you talked about the audacity of hope and very some, some pro-Obama sentiments there. Don't you think politicians often manipulate this aspect of our psychology, that manipulating people's hopes is a, is a huge part of what politics is? Mm. And then the idea would be something like you have this sort of Buy in the sky objectives, right? Um, so, you know, my slogan will be that Tuvalu is not going to drown, right? <laughs> but I don't have any idea how to bring that about. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. Because as you're saying, the hope is, I mean, what, what triggers the hope is really the, the objective. Yeah. Um, and, and the politician could just, you know, throw out that objective without filling in any of the paths towards it and and then leave it open to the voter actually it's like yeah that's what i want too i got some ideas more business would be good right yeah so you know there's various paths towards that thing and as long as your objective is very vague you can draw in a lot of people yeah. it becomes a way to slip past people the fact you're not really talking specifics about immediate actions mm -hmm. exactly yeah yeah that's interesting Suzanne, let's yeah, bring you in on this topic of hope. I mean, what what do you hope for, and how do you how do you avoid over hoping? I can answer a different question. <laughs> <laughs> you hope for a different question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I actually don't know how to answer this one. It's interesting. Um, but what I've been thinking about, well, the two of you. So I, I'm not an expert on hope at all, but I wanted to tie it back to grief, and I think. That's something that's implicit throughout Kieran's book, but he doesn't actually make it explicit. But grief is many things. And I think there's good grief and let's call it regrettable grief. And we're being well, it's sort of a postcard point again, but I think it's an important point. And I think good grief is when you miss someone because they were important to you and you think um, they were a valuable human being. But I think there's a lot of grief that's tied to having regrets and here's where hope comes in. I think we somehow, that's also why death is such an insult. While alive, we kind of count on staying alive. And we have this hope that maybe especially, but not only in personal relationships, somehow there will be a time when I can fix something or I will get to it, but not yeah. now. And I think this is actually really pernicious hope and um, facing or just looking um, our mortality in the eye can help us here in, in the sense that we shouldn't hope here, like we will die. And one way of grieving is regretting that you haven't even attempted to fix something that you knew was an issue in a relationship. So I think here, just realizing that you'll die and reflecting on what you could at least attempt to fix, maybe in relationships, but also beyond, can be really helpful. And so I think uh, it's not good mm. to hope that you can fix it later, if you could maybe try to fix it now. That's what I've been thinking. But the bad kind of yeah. hope sometimes result from a belief that everything will just carry on indefinitely for you. 
there'll always be a chance to yeah like there will be a better time to fix it because now i'm just terribly busy with work life whatever (laughs) yeah yeah that's kind of the hope of complacency right Mm. um i do think there is something about this idea so there's an alleged quote from aristotle nowhere to be found in in his works but it's a biographer who writes it and he says that aristotle thinks that hope is a waking dream yeah and that's the idea of you know mental imaging that is you know letting that what you're what you're hoping for just tossing it around in your head yeah Um, but i think that that is an important thing because what it helps you with and this sort of goes the other way is if that's your objective and you toss it around in your head, then you are starting to look for ways to realize that objective. And sometimes I also think that it's not just finding means towards it, but it's also a matter of sort of value clarification. Yeah, that is, you know, I hope to be a successful journalist. Do I want? I want a Pulitzer. I'm not getting a Pulitzer. I really hope to be a successful journalist. Or maybe I can be a successful journalist in different ways. Yeah. And you start looking for other ways to fill in your objectives. So I do think that in hope that there is also this kind of productive moment of searching for means towards what you hope for and, and, and trying to fill in in different ways how to get what you want, yeah. even if the original way of getting it isn't quite a way of filling it in. There's sort of a value clarification. Yeah. Hope can be creative in this way. Yeah, Suzanne, yeah I think the complacency is... Um, when you hope that things will take care of themselves. <laughs> I see, I see, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think really we often hope that. Yeah. Also climate change, for example, my dad is close to being a climate change denier. And when he's not quite denying climate change, he just hopes for technological progress. Things will not turn, turn out as badly because we'll just find a way to fix it. And so that's this hope that things, market forces, whatever, things will somehow take care of themselves. I just wanted to pick up on, on another... Uh, one of the things Susanna said, which I thought was really deep and just sort of draw attention to, which was, I think, part of what you were getting at was something that was central to me in thinking about this book, about life is hard, which is the point of thinking about the ways in which life is hard is not sort of a lugubrious dwelling in the difficulties of life. It's to orient oneself to reality so as to respond to it properly and the thought is just the simple one that you can't respond properly to the circumstance you're in if you're not actually facing up to it and so i think in this case the, the part of what's happening in the when someone says there'll be plenty of time for this later is that they're not there's a hard reality which is there may not be and they don't want to think about the reality and as a result their action that they find themselves in the case of grief you're describing so i think that's part of why it goes and you also said value clarification that's also part of it so, so the part of the point of thinking about the difficulties of life in a way that you are all being forced to do this evening <laughs> as well i mean you volunteered to do this evening anyway but <laughs> as, as that it, it and what philosophy can do is by dwelling on them help to kind of clarify what our responses can be and sometimes that will take the form of here's a surprising insight you've never had before here's a cool argument that death isn't really so bad Often what it takes the form of is saying, let's actually describe what's going on and try to describe it richly enough that we can start to orient ourselves towards it. And that orientation is a kind of philosophical uh, insight and a kind of philosophical therapy. It's got a framing story, right? Mm. Yeah. 
Great. So we've covered some proper big hitting philosophical <laughs> issues in this in this discussion already. We've talked about death and mortality and grief and the meaning of life and the uses and limits of hope and how to face up to the hard realities in all of these cases. At this point, it'd be wonderful to take questions from the audience. These can come from the in-person audience or they can come from online. If you're online and you have a question, please type it in the Q&A box and we'll come to those in a moment. If you're in the room, please wait for the roving microphone to come to you from a steward um, because we want the people online to be able to hear what the question is. So we'll start with the, with the back row there. Just a reminder to please wait for the microphone to come to you. Here it comes now. Thank you. Thank you uh, for a very interesting conversation. Um, it was, it was, it, it was, I was curious that it started off with death and sort of talking about death being the end of it all and ended up with a conversation about how hard the hope is. So being hopeful about you know, planet not ending or uh, oceans not rising. So I was wondering if hope is that hard, what is the philosophical justification of not killing ourselves? If, if living is so hard with hope, why shouldn't we all just die? I think that's a fair, fair question, given the context of the event. So, so Kieran, um, <laughs> why, why, why not suicide? <laughs> not suicide. Um, I, I mean, I, I want to say, I, I, uh, on the one hand, it's a funny question in a way. On the other hand, it's a very serious topic. So if you are feeling suicidal, please, there are mental health. I'm sure there are mental health services available at LSE. So, um, it, you know, and there's lots of empirical evidence that people who feel suicidal who don't then kill themselves shortly afterwards think, I'm glad I didn't, I made a mistake. So usually when people are actually having suicidal ideation, it's some, it's not an accurate guide to the value of their own life. Yeah. But I, I, I'm not sure there's a, so my general sense of like very fundamental value questions, if someone says, you know, why is life worth living at all? I can say, well, you know, there's baseball and there's family and there's friends. And if they say, no, 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 no convince me that any of those things have value and convince me that it's enough value to make up for all the difficulties in life. My general sense is that philosophical argument is not going to win at this point. And that's not because those things aren't valuable and that life isn't worth living. It's because when you reach the point of arguing with someone who's in effect, a kind of philosophical skeptic, someone who's really put into doubt something pretty fundamental, they're also going to put into doubt almost any premise you try to use to argue with them. So you could even talk to them about baseball, which I love, and they might not even like it. They may never, you've never even been to a baseball game. Like they're just utter indifference. You know, so you, you run out of arguments. And I think the right response to that is to say, yeah, when we get far enough down to bedrock, there isn't going to be an argument that will convince someone. But that doesn't mean they're right or that we're wrong. It's you know, in the same way as you can, if you argue with a sufficiently committed conspiracy theorist, any bit of evidence you provide, they've, they've either pre-digested or they have another, they can quickly come up with another explanation of how that fits into their uh, implausible conspiracy. That doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean they're reasonable. So um, I realized I rudely compared you to a conspiracy theorist. So I take that back. Uh -huh. But the thought is, I think at a certain, I, I'm not sure that at, at the point of asking that, basic a question about value that there's going to be a philosophical argument that mm. convinces us 
and in general, I'm a little skeptical of the power of philosophical argument. So that the the part of what I was getting at when I said a lot of philosophical work is going to be done by describing things and help in a way that orients us to them, it's partly coming out of a sense that coming up with arguments that really tell people here's why you should be a nice person or here's why you should be optimistic. Uh, they rarely convince people. So Suzanne, let's bring yeah. you in on this. I mean, you've written you know, very humanely and sensitively, I think, on this exact issue. I want to say two things. One is, so I really don't want to encourage anyone to commit suicide, but I think it's still a taboo. And what Kieran just now said, I think in a sense, the mere fact that you regret um, or are glad that you haven't committed it doesn't show that you were wrong. I mean, you might be wrong now that you mm. <laughs> no longer think it's a good idea. Um, so that's, um, but, and, and also, I mean, we're all going to die anyway. So it's just that you cut off a few years that you would otherwise have had. It's not like you would be immortal otherwise. But what I really want to say is actually, I think there is something like a philosophical argument in this case that I personally find quite convincing. And it's in Kieran's book as well. <laughs> and it's, well, life isn't just about being happy so maybe it's really hard to be happy and you might realize that it's out of reach for you or to feel a lot of pleasure or you need drugs in order to feel that but that's just not what life is all about or realizing that maybe you're not going to be very happy is not yet a reason to commit suicide because life could still be interesting or worthwhile in a way where you just um accept a certain amount of suffering um, and I, I kind of feel that way. So just give up on the idea of happiness as a, a precondition um, for thinking that going on is worthwhile. <laughs> oh, I mean, lives can clearly be worthwhile and yet full yeah. of suffering. Think of Nelson Mandela, for example. Lives like this, where the, the suffering leads to a certain strength of character. Yeah, but I don't have anything like that in mind. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, for example, have a small, uh, I have a child now, and I think it involves a lot of suffering on my part. Um, like when she's very clingy, it's tough, but also yeah. when she's no longer clingy, it will be tough. <laughs> but I would do it all over again because it's very nice to have this relationship where you're as vulnerable as this, where someone actually has this power to hurt you basically by doing whatever she does so uh, and i think that yeah life is just not all about happiness and i think that's an interesting outlook and you actually find this argument in kieran's book who just said he's very mm -hmm. skeptical no, I, <laughs> there is an argument I, to be had here I, okay I, let's... I, I agree i agree with myself on this point <laughs> <laughs> let's go to, uh luke did you want to I yeah, I, I just want to lift the mood a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I meant it to be uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> because the topic of happiness comes in. There is a wonderful book. It's very hard to get. Um, it's called An Analysis of Happiness. And it was written by Tatarkiewicz in the middle of the Warsaw Ghetto. Yeah. And um, Tatarkiewicz, it's a, it's a fantastic book. Um, it's translated in, in English. Um, the Tatarkiewicz was a very happy man. And they asked him one time what his secret was. And he said, poor memory and lack of imagination. And I, I think that's, that's very interesting, actually. Don't drag the past and don't set your aspirations crazy for your magnum opus. Um, but, but then sort of the idea of, you know, what is it? Is it about... Is it all about happiness? And, and I was thinking about that frost quote you have here, and um, which is like you know the the root the root um, of dealing with happiness 
sorry, the root of dealing with suffering is through the suffering rather than out of the suffering. Or the only way out is through the suffering. Yeah, I'm sure Frost said it a lot nicer than that. <laughs> I forgot the exact yeah. quote. But but that's interesting because it, it sort of squares with what Suzanne is saying, right? That is, there is something meaningful in working your way through the suffering. Um, and I find that I find that very, very intriguing, actually. And let me just throw something out. I was talking to somebody who was a Zumba instructor. And they asked, why Zumba? Yeah, you know, sort of dance exercise. And she said, Zumba, because it's cheaper than therapy. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, because in therapy, we work our way through the suffering. In Zumba, we say, <laughs> yeah, there is all the suffering. There isn't much you can do about it, but drown it out with some good times. You know, it's more the Epicurean view, I think. So, so I don't know, you know. It sort of all turns around things that are have been said here. Yeah, then we'll move on. We should move on to the next question. I just can't resist another anecdote, which is when an interviewer once asked the novelist Colin Toyden which of his novels he most enjoyed writing. And he looked at the interviewer incredulously and said, there was no enjoyment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, Brian, do we have a question from the online audience? Let's uh, take one. Yes. Uh, this, so this question is from MK Siri, uh, one of the YouTube live streamers. Uh, and the question is for Luke, really, concerning the doctor anecdote that you mentioned and the magnum opus view of meaning that it's your magnum opus that counts, the family tree in this case. Do you think that's more prevalent? Do you think that's more of an option uh, in societies where people have the liberty to choose a profession like that as compared to societies that are perhaps less privileged? Yeah, that's interesting. Um it sort of squares a bit with, you know, if you want to think about the social context here, right? I think, I think there is something about, about capitalism, and this is thinking sort of in the style of the Frankfurter Schule, um, that capitalism, the, 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 the tense of capitalism is the futurum exactum, the, the I will have done, yeah, the I will have done. And it's very much sort of geared towards, you know, what projects do you put on the table? So that's the sort of, you know, social context that, that I would, would give it. Um, I think it's part of our way of thinking about, you know, political theory, political philosophy, um, and, a, and a sort of capitalist ethic that gets us into this mode of, um, of, of the, the value of my life is the, the grand projects that I have done and how do we measure that? And in that sense, I think it's a mistake. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say on, on the there's a really interesting book called Born Losers by the historian Scott Sandage, in which he traces the the phase in history where the term failure comes to be applied to oh, people, not just events. So you don't just say this project failed or this enterprise failed, but I am a failure or I am a success. Mm. And it happened in sort of the mid-19th century in the context of American industrialization and the growth of capitalism and the idea of credit reports and sort of evaluate the idea that you could take stock of a life in financial terms. So I think there's a very deep connection between the evolution of capitalism and the ideology of projects and even the ideology on which a certain project defines you. And that project is one that you didn't necessarily choose, which is the project of achieving a certain kind of financial sort of uh, profile. 
It's a horrible way of thinking, isn't it? You know, a, a way of thinking on which a whole life can be a failure. Right. Yeah, I think but, the whole, yeah, we could, I think it's an idea we should just dispense with. And once we have the freedom to choose a profession, I guess there is a sort of responsibility that comes with, and did you realize the grand project? Right. Because now we have nobody else to blame than ourselves. Right. right. Mm-hmm. That's what they want us to think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's take another question from in the room. So let's go to the, uh, the fourth row here. Please wait for the microphone to come to you so that the online audience can hear the question. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much for this really enlightening discussion. Um, I have a question about what philosophy might have to say about consciousness. Um, And I was thinking about this because the discussion we've had so far is about how philosophy provides frameworks for coping with difficulties in life. And these frameworks are grounded in logic and rationality. And that makes a lot of sense in contemporary therapy, cognitive behavioral therapies about rationality. But what I found from a personal experience with loss is that while you can train your conscious mind to accept loss, it's very difficult when you're asleep, for example, and you're dreaming about this person and it's very tormenting. You wake up and you're like, oh my God, this person isn't here anymore. So I wonder what philosophy might have to say about the unconscious mind. Does it address that or is that the realm of psychology? Thank you. Mm. you my, I mean, my general instinct is to resist boundaries and just say, well, I, I, maybe it's psychology, maybe it's philosophy, but if we philosophers shouldn't avoid trying to say something helpful about it on the grounds that it's someone else's job. I, I do think there's a, I think I love the the analogy you drew, because I often think of what philosophers are doing when they try to do something to address the hardships of life as a kind of philosophical version of cognitive behavioral therapy. The thought is in cognitive behavioral therapy, there's kind of misconceptions about whether you're popular or whether your mother loves you or that, you know, that, that you try and work through. And then the cognitive change is supposed to affect your emotions. And I can't do that in a book for you, but I can think about kind of structuring philosophical assumptions about life there might be misconceptions that you share with me or have shared with me and then work on them. And then there's this point you reach in both cognitive behavioral therapy and reading a philosophy book that's supposed to address it. You think, well, I'm, I think I've got my head around this. And yeah, it, it's sort of helping my feelings somewhat, but I, the, it doesn't automatically change how you feel. And it certainly doesn't automatically change the, the kind of unconscious sort of motives. I mean, I think this is I don't have a great answer to this because I, I think one of the attractions, so there's a kind of tradition in philosophy on which philosophy is supposed to make your life better. That is an ancient tradition. I want to revive it. That there's also a tradition of philosophy as a way of life in which it's built around a bunch of practices. Like you go and live in the commune with the other philosophers and you engage in kind of daily rituals. And this is working on your unconscious mind. This is working on your entire pattern of relating to the world. And I think there really isn't a substitute for practice for those kinds of things that, that reading a book cannot give you. And, you know, I think there can, part of the appeal of the contemporary of contemporary stoicism is that they do give you a list of exercises and then they run a weekend commune and you can go and hang out with them. And uh, I don't think any of us are planning. Maybe there's things I don't know about you <laughs> are planning are planning to start a, a commune shortly. But, uh, but I think that's a problem. I think that's, I just want to acknowledge that's a problem I think you're pointing to is 
there's yeah. limits to how much the cognitively working this stuff through will get you. And then we're sort of, even if you really liked a philosophical book about how to live, it will be leaving you in the lurch saying, now you go figure out how to, you know, do mindfulness meditation or whatever, whatever pra- things you already do, try to integrate this with them somehow, but you're kind of left on your own a little bit. This is what religion is extremely good at, right? Giving right. people the rituals, the habits, yeah. the way of life. Philosophy perhaps used to do that in ancient Greece and has now ceased to do that. Right. I think that's right. And I think there's, I, I, like I said, there's a revival of philosophers yeah. trying to address problems like grief or injustice in the world around you and doing something practical but what that what there hasn't been, with maybe the exception of of Stoicism, is a revival of the this is now going to be your way of life. You are a you know, whatever it might be. Um Setian. Yeah, well, okay, let's not do that. But the uh but with Stoicism, you can say that. People people have the idea, I am now a modern Stoic, and it's an identity and a practice and a community. And yeah, I don't think there's a substitute for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, do we have more questions from the online I, audience? I, I should say I have put a lot of subliminal messages in my book to reach the <laughs> <laughs> uh, So this question is from Christina Easton, a postdoc at Warwick and uh, an LSE philosophy alum. She is asking about that discussion you had concerning hope. And, uh, and she asks, um, is hope the sort of thing we need just the right amount of it in, in order to perhaps act or induce action? Is it the sort of thing that, uh, you know, if, if we don't have enough, we're just hopeless and we don't act. And if we have too much, we become complacent. So is there a sort of Aristotelian golden mean balance that's needed for hope? Or is the answer sort of more complicated and whether hope is useful depends on, uh, on what you're hoping for, for example? I can try and answer, and then you can. So we, we both have, I think, parallel views about this. So we'll see how how closely parallel. Hmm. I think I would say even for Aristotle, the the golden mean, the mean. So he has this idea that virtues are a mean between two extremes. So between cowardice and recklessness, you find the right balance, and that's courage. Or between, um, you know, wastefulness and being cheap, you find generous the virtue of generosity. And I think, yeah, we should think of hope that way. Although Aristotle didn't apply his theory of virtue to hope. But even for him, it's not really just about quantity. It really is about at the right time. He said, this is an attempt at a quote of a power of a translation at the right times, in the right ways, towards the right things, etc. So the idea of the mean is not quantitative. It's about the judgment of where and how and towards what you direct it. So I think the thing that the question is pointing to as I th- there's an implicit argument, I think, in the question, which is it's not just quantity, right? It has to be about the right things. Right. Anyway, if there's an argument like that, I think, yes, that's a good argument. And I think it's Aristotelian. Is that, I don't know if that fits how you think about it. Yeah, the, the, the Greek word for hope is elpis. And, and uh, we kind of coined this term of elpistology that is thinking about hope. And then we added social to it, social elpistology. Yeah. And so the idea is really, you know how is it that that hope can be an uplifting an uplifting endeavor under conditions of oppression that's really what the what the whole and what the whole story is about because you know as we saw the the red character in in Shawshank redemption you know refrains from hoping you know because things won't work out well for him anyway you know? he sort of has given up on hoping and he only sees the dangers of it rather than the rather than the benefits. Um, 
Um, so, so I think it is true that in and that the social conditions in many ways determine, you know, what kind of hopes you should have, how you should be hoping, and so on. But at the same time, I also do think that there is that audacity thing that is, you know, even if your social conditions don't seem to give you all that much, you know, try to pull yourself up and get into the virtuous cycle of hoping, because it automatically gives you the benefit of saying to yourself, I'm somebody who is worth hoping for. That you get for free immediately. Yeah. Okay, let's take another question from uh, inside the room. So let's, can we go to the back? Um, a few rows from the, the back there. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Um, I just want to try and trace a thread from Susan's Epicureans to Kieran's Telic and Atelic activities. Uh, from memory, Kieran, your previous book placed quite a bit of effort in creating meaning between the two different types of activities. So could you perhaps trace a thread back to classical Greece to see if Suzanne has a comment on that? And where, where, where did the Greeks start thinking about those two different types of uh, actions that could give us meaning where an atelic activity can perhaps not give us the immediacy of meaning, but uh, uh, an ultimate meaning through time and through one's life. So thanks. Yes, Kieran, this gives you a chance to promote your earlier book uh, and, and tell us what, what this, this distinction is. Distinction, is yeah, that comes up in both. Um, so the, the idea is that roughly telic activities are projects where you aim at some thing you're trying to achieve. And they have, uh, philosophers spend a lot of time thinking about life as projects structured by projects, but they have a problem, which is or several problems. One is that the satisfaction is always in the future. And then the moment you achieve it, you get the promotion at work or you, you have a kid. If that was your goal, it's done. That's over. What next? Also, by engaging in projects, you're trying to finish them. So you're taking this thing that's a source of meaning in your life and your relationship to it is, I'll get rid of that as quickly as possible, which is a very perverse way to relate to the sources of meaning in your life. Fortunately, not all activities are like this. So atelic activities are ones that don't have a built-in terminus like that. So simple example would be there was walking here, was telic, you got here, but just going for a walk with no particular destination, it's atelic. There's no particular point at which you're like, I can't do any more of that. That's over with. You just do it as long as you want to do it. And they don't have this feature that satisfaction is in the future or the past. If what you want is to be going for a walk and you're going for a walk, then there's nothing more that you're going for or valuing or aiming for than that's happening right now. And so it leads to a way of thinking about living in the present that I find helpful. And also a way it relates back to the issue about failure and the way in which structuring your life in terms of projects is structuring it in terms of things that are going to succeed or fail. And that's not the only kind of thing we engage in and not the only kind of valuable thing we engage in. And we should not be single-mindedly focused on it. Now, how does this relate Epicurus and death. I, I'm not sure because I think even with an atelic activity, it makes sense to want to keep doing it longer. I think so. Even if you were focused on atelic activities, I think you might still be upset at the prospect of death. Yeah, but it's potentially less devastating. So I think it's definitely a way of reading Epicureanism that they understand the good life as composed of. Atelic. Atelic yeah. Yeah, yeah. activities yeah. Um, in the sense that at least if death 
um, ends these activities. They were good for as long as they lasted. And like I said, Epicureans would add the assumption that more of a good thing is not actually better. And I think I haven't mentioned this yet, but Epicureans were extremely happy about reaching the conclusion that death is nothing. So if you have a focus on eight atelic activities, as opposed to projects where death is really a threat, they were extremely happy about the conclusion that death is no longer a threat that you should fear, because they thought that the fear of death really ruins our lives. So it makes us lead much worse lives, not just because we're nervous and anxious, alternatively with sad and depressed, but also because we could become manipulable. So we have this fear, we don't openly confront it. So this makes us manipulable through false religion or the false promises of religion. And also um, the Epicureans said that we seek something like a false immortality by seeking social status, we accumulate material wealth, we seek political power, and these are all just based on our fear of death. So if you can focus more on atelic activities and make death less of a threat, the idea is that you actually live a better life. So, yeah. Let's take another question from the online audience. Um, okay, no, well, let's stay in the room. Brian's, Brian's <laughs> saying, we'll stay in the room because we've got a lot of questions in the room. Uh, let's go to the, the back row um, view of the audience in the room there. Yep, thanks. Hello, my question is for uh, Professor Zataya. Um, you talked about the necessary conditions for a story to confer meaning. Um, it must elicit some sort of emotional reaction and it also needs to be true. And it seems to me like there's this tension between truth and it being a story. I mean, a story is by definition an abstraction. Um, and some of the most meaningful works of art um, are false, right? They're fictional abstractions of the objects they claim to represent. So what kind of truth must a story uh, meet to confer meaning? Um, does it really have to speak to, um, pertain to some sort of intrinsic feature of humankind or can it be, does it suffice that it's somehow true in and of its own? That's very interesting. I mean, I so there is one kind of thought is some stories are just fictional and they're not true. You know, uh, Luke Skywalker did not uh, uh, live on a planet called Tatooine, and if you, you know, sorry to break that to you. Anyway, so there's that kind of there's that kind of falsehood. But I, I take it you all, there's also a deeper kind of worry, which is that stories, even stories that are alleged to be historical narratives, it's kind of a concern that comes up in the philosophy of history, by imposing narrative structure, are in a way falsifying. And I, myths, I suppose. Yeah. So I the, I can give a very short answer that will be very unsatisfying, which is I don't think that uh, I think historical narratives can be straightforwardly true. And I think even I think the forms of selectivity and structuring that historians engage in, in which you turn something into a narrative, th there's all kinds of things missing out. And there's ways in which you, it's not the, it's not the whole truth. But I don't think that should make us worry about the whole idea of historical truth. So in the same way, I'm just not worried about the very possibility of historical truth about the history of human beings. I do think it will be easy to deceive oneself about it and any such historical narrative is going to be um, selective in various ways. And then there's a kind of worry, what if there are several stories that are different, that are all true, none of them are straightforwardly false, but as you can have with it, you know, it, if you think about the analogy with interpreting a work of art, you might think there's these two readings 
of Portrait of a Lady. They're both great. That's like wonderful readings. Do I have to decide which one is right? Eh, it might not. I think those things are, I, I think threats of indeterminacy like that are genuine puzzles and complications to thinking about the meaning of life. So I think that a full story, which I don't really try to tell in the book, would take into account the fact that the meaning of life, it could be in various ways indeterminate, or it could be in various ways um, uh so you might you might be able to tell the meaning of life in different incompatible but equally valid ways and yeah uh that that i think it is a potential puzzle here but i don't think we should worry that just because it's a narrative form it's not really true luke is grimacing at oh, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a question that i had when i was reading the book um i mean it seems to me that this kind of grasping for giving meaning to the big human project, right? Through saying, well, there's a narrative that we need to find. I mean, to me, it sounded very telic mm. and too telic for my taste. I mean, I feel like if we'll say at the end of it, we'll bumble along and have some fun on the way, you uh-huh. know, that, that's good enough. I mean, I don't, I don't yeah. know whether I need a narrative. I feel like it's too telic. It's like as if this, but there's a narrative and this is the project we realized human justice and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is true. The mm-hmm. of humanity. So I do think it, we should think of it <laughs> atelically as sort of struggling towards a greater justice and we shouldn't think. And there's this point we need to reach. And if we get to there, we win. And if we don't, we lose. I, I think we should resist the, the kind of telic framing of, of the kind of questions about the shape of human history that I think are relevant to whether life has meaning. I do think there is a tension, or at least there's just a contrast, which may not be a problem, between how I think about individual lives, where I think, resist the idea of a grand narrative. Don't go in for that. Mm -hmm. It's just all the mess of life. Mm -hmm. And if you focus on just one narrative, you set yourself up for this kind of, I'm a failure problem. Don't. There's way more to your life than any one thing, structuring project. You're not the hero of a Hollywood movie. There's Mm There's tons of stuff going on in anyone's life. And it may be good or bad, but it's not defined by this one arc. And the way I think about the meaning of life, where I do think what we crave is a story that does somehow bring it all together and give us a feeling that we can come to emotional terms with everything, human life and everything. And as to whether we really, could we just dispense with that? I don't quite know how to answer that question. What I think is, you, you may not feel a need for that kind of narrative. On the other hand, the prevalence of religions, one you know, armchair sociological thought is part of what they give us is if not a narrative, the, the, the assurance that there is some narrative out there, if we're not going to tell you it, um, that they're answering this need. So I, I, I guess I think people do have, many people do have this kind of spiritual need. Mm. And so it's a good question whether there's anything secular that could meet the spiritual need for life to have meaning. But if someone said, I just don't need that, uh, as with the suicide question, I would say, I'm not sure how to argue that you really should. But if you do, you know, here's some things I can say to address that need. It's not hopeless. Good. Well, I'm glad the gloves have finally come off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. Um, so there will now be book signings. Um, Luke and Kieran both have these fantastic new books. You can buy one or both of them right here, right now. And outside the room, there will be tables with lots of copies and you can get your copy signed there and then. 
Um, my apologies if you had a question which we didn't have time to get to, but thanks very much for attending this event. And let's thank all of the panellists for a really excellent discussion. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.